Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. If you spend any time in business, you understand the uh, task that there is to track costs, direct costs that might be associated with the purchase of land and buildings, or maybe the labor and material costs, taxes and fees, or any other expenses that might directly relate to the operations of your business. But economists sometimes warn about what are essentially hidden costs, costs that you may not be uh, cognizant of, but could be far greater than you would want to be aware of, or you would, uh, I should say, uh, want to acknowledge. They're sometimes called opportunity costs. These are those costs not uh, directly related to what you're doing, to what you're not doing. The costs that you don't sort of... uh, calculate, but are true because you haven't invested time and and effort and energy and revenue or whatever it might be into alternative endeavors. You have exhausted yourself pursuing whatever you're pursuing, and in some cases down to such excruciating detail, getting lost in the weeds of whatever you're involved with, you don't take the time to stop and step back and consider all of the missed opportunities that have passed you by that day, that week, that year, or your whole life. These are, of course, difficult to calculate because they never materialize, but they are real. Lost connections, lost networking, lost benefits, lost joy that you never knew. This, of course, applies in the spiritual realm as well. There's a real cost to making the wrong choice and investing yourself in the wrong pursuits, things which might have some perhaps temporal or partial benefit, but cause you to forfeit to massive degrees eternal benefits. Jesus, of course, warned of this when he said, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Those are cost opportunities. Those are, those are missed benefits with eternal consequences. That's the outcome of people who, for whatever reason, have prioritized the wrong things. They have focused on the futile. They have pursued the peripheral. They've occupied themselves with things that end up empty. And in the pursuit of all those things, missed the opportunity of what provides true, lasting peace and hope. In many cases, of course, the things that they're pursuing are material and worldly and, and focused on everything else that the world is focused on, but in some cases, they might be religious. That is to say, even within the realm of religion, there's the opportunity to be focused on the wrong things, to be pursuing with all of your vigor and zeal, to be pursuing priorities which are misplaced and misguided. They end up consuming all of your time and your focus, but at the end of the day, they're empty. And they provide no eternal benefit because they're in the pursuit of a vain religious devotion, one that might impress people around you temporally, but they, they are valueless to God. And they divert your attention and distract your mind from pursuing what is true and genuine and 
and real. Last week, we had an opportunity to hear from Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 with a message about just these kinds of dangers of what we call worthless religion. He's talking to a group of people in the temple in Matthew chapter 23 with a sermon that's focused on the dangers of this kind of misguided approach to religion that stifles and obscures what genuine spiritual reality is all about, fills your time with all kinds of efforts, but doesn't really provide any lasting benefits. This is, of course, uh, such an important message, and it's punctuated by the fact that Jesus gives it as his final address, his final sermon on his final public day of ministry. And it becomes, in that sense, a very pivotal warning of the profound dangers of this kind of deceptive religiosity He articulates this in a series of woes here, seven of them that are given throughout the span of Matthew chapter 23 that are all intended to unmask, if you will, the hollow nature of the religious practices in Israel and of the Pharisees and scribes, but really serve as an enduring and stark exposition of the dangers that are inherent in any superficial religion. That religion that prioritizes outward appearance but with no inner transformation, no inner power that can touch your soul. Jesus is denouncing this, this masquerading religion that is absent of self-examination. It is absent of humility. It's absent of confession. It's absent of personal brokenness of all that God really desires when it comes to genuine faith. So this is a timeless reminder for us, an important reminder, as I said, punctuated by the fact that this is Jesus' last message to Israel. In it, we could see the core elements of genuine faith, but in contrast, what we really hear coming from Christ are the dangers of a kind of worthless religion that traps so many people and blinds them to what is the genuine need of their heart. Seven needs warnings. We started to look at them last week, beginning in verse 13 and 14. When Jesus warns about a kind of religion that hinders people from entering into heaven, he says, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor you allow others who would enter to go in. So these people are not, they're not comprehending God's truth But they're not only rejecting that for themselves, they're obscuring it for other people. And by that, they're shutting people out of eternity. Shutting the the, the door, if you will, in the faces of those who might otherwise earnestly hear from the Lord and seek divine answers for their problems. In verse 15, he gives a second warning, a warning how this Worthless religion converts people to more corruption. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So they not only are shutting the door of the kingdom in people's faces, but those that they are encountering, they're actually making them more corrupt. They're actually giving them the, the kind of facade to cover up their sin and make them more polluted on the inside than they were before. 
Well, all that leads then to a third warning that we want to turn our attention to this morning. Another warning about this kind of worthless religion that we need to take to heart. Because this kind of religion, not only does it shut people out of the kingdom and not only does it make them more corrupt, but it masks deception as devotion. It actually gives all of these trappings of, 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 of a kind of devotion, a kind of worship that is nothing more than just a justification for deception. Jesus says it this way in verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So this worthless religion that Jesus is talking about had taken this concept of sacred oaths and twisted and distorted them to basically mask what were deliberate deceptions on the part of these scribes and Pharisees. And they did it by constructing what is essentially a two-tiered system of oaths where certain oaths were considered binding and other oaths were not. In certain cases, you had to keep your word. In certain cases, you didn't. This was a childish game uh, like crossing your fingers behind your back, knowing that you had no intent to keep the word that you were proposing to give to other people. It was a system designed to justify sin and deception. An oath, of course, is a statement that we give that invites some sort of punishment, some sort of negative consequences if it's untrue. The uh, sort of if-then of these oaths, you are calling God, if my word is broken, you're calling on him or some higher power to punish you if your statement is untrue. Society, of course, has had these for a long time because we need them. In the midst of our, our cultures and our life, we need them to guarantee truth because people cannot be trustworthy all the time. In, mo- in many cases, they can't be trustworthy. And so from the very beginning of time, we've had to have ways to validate and to verify people's statements because men and women are liars. All of us are born liars. We're born to it, the scripture says. We come out of the womb speaking lies, Psalm 58 says. It's our nature to want to deceive and to want to cover up. We've been trained by our own hearts to do it, and so we have to have some external measure, not only oaths, but even good upbringing, certain education. We have to have all of that to bend our will back to the way of truth. And so we've always had, whether it was the Hippocratic Oath 
developed so many years ago and still practiced to this day where doctors and physicians have to take an oath to do medicine honestly. Or the oath of allegiance where citizens have to swear a loyalty to their country. Or an oath of citizenship where immigrants are required to promise some fidelity to their new nation. Or an oath of office where politicians and public servants have to promise us that they will uphold the very laws that they're being elected to, 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 to pursue. We have all kinds of vows, whether it's wedding vows or membership vows, all of these things normally with some sort of formal ceremony and solemn uh, solemn commitment and some audience watching on. They have all of these vows and and, uh, oaths that come in order to express the weightiness of the words and the responsibilities that people are assuming, and we administer them in all kinds of situations with Vows of devastating consequence. We give them because people need them. They need them because they have either, in some cases, just experienced broken trust, or in some cases, they don't know us in any real fashion. They're unfamiliar to us from a distance. And so we can't judge their character, or we have no time to judge their character and their word. And so we require them to give oaths, whether it's in a court of law or, as I said, in some assuming of an office. You look into Scripture, you even see the same sort of thing. The Lord gave oaths. He gave oaths because he understood what kind of world we live in and that people break promises all the time. And so Hebrews 6.13, for example, says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Or later on, when God, God desired to show, by an, uh, show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchanging character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, the writer says. This is not something that God did often, but it is something he did. God gave oaths. He swore by his own name, adding, if you will, emphasis and weight to his words. In the same sense, you see even some believers like the Apostle Paul giving an oath in Romans 1, God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I always make mention of you in my prayers. Or he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. All of these are kind of our our oaths of a sort, underscoring the importance and the weightiness of the words that are being given because we exist in a world where words sometimes don't always carry truthfulness. They don't carry the kind of veracity that they ought to carry. Scripture even gives warnings because it understands that we will give these kinds of oaths. So it gives warnings that when you give vows and when you give oaths, you must do so with a sobriety. 
Numbers 30, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So these were realities. They have been realities. They're acknowledged by God, by saints, by his word as important and true. And yet, Unfortunately, when it came to the scribes and Pharisees, even their oaths had been corrupted. Even their vows had become unreliable. They were having to, if you will, add to them some extra measure because when they made a a statement or when they made a promise or when they made a vow or when they made an oath, it wasn't even reliable anymore. And they created this system that essentially gave them the opportunity to appear to be speaking the truth when in fact they were not. They weren't intending to. A very structured, two-tiered system of oaths. Why? Because what these people were in private is very different than what they were in public. They were dishonest people. Just like everyone else in the world, they were dishonest. They just covered it up with religion. They didn't fundamentally have a problem with deception. They just wanted a way to sanctify it. A way, a loophole, if you will, where they could be thought of as honest when they were actually dishonest. And so they came up with a system where you could lie but not be called a liar. Because technically, the oath that you gave was not binding. This system was basically, as I said, this two-tiered system where some things were considered more devoted and some things less devoted. Some things more sacrificial, some things less sacrificial. So the gold on the temple was more sacred than the temple itself, or the gift on the altar was more sacred than the altar itself, or God's throne in heaven was more sacred than heaven itself. But Jesus exposes all this perverted logic. Why? Because God is enthroned in the heavens and therefore all the heavens belong to him. And God is enthroned in the temple. And so everything associated with the temple belongs to him. And God receives everything offered on the altar and everything that was uh, that, that undergirds that offering, including the altar itself. So in that sense, you can't escape accountability to God. Everything you say, everything that you see, everything that could be pledged in any way belongs to him. You have no ultimate right, in other words, to take a vow that calls a curse down on anything Because that thing that you're calling a curse on doesn't really belong to you. All of it is God's. He's the one who controls everything. And you need to understand that is the very foundation of reality, of truthfulness, of error and falsehood. You do not control anything, ultimately. God does. He's the one who who sits enthroned above everything. He's the one who is sovereign over everything. 
And so you don't have the right or the ability to change that reality. You can lie about it, but it doesn't change it. You can curse it, but that's not your right. Yet that vow that you supposedly make, it may in your mind seem like you have that authority, but you don't. It's kind of what Jesus was getting at earlier whenever he talked about oaths back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he, he said, do not take oaths at all. Of course, he, he's not talking about formal ceremonies because as we've seen, God himself gave oaths and even some of the apostles and saints gave oaths. He's not, he's not banning certain oaths. Some Mennonites and uh, Quakers and pacifists have misread the scripture that way. Sometimes that happens in the Sermon on the Mount. People uh, take those extreme or, or um, uh, uh, sort of uh, strong statements as universal, but, but that's not what Jesus was getting at. What he's getting at was these kinds of oaths really should be unnecessary. In a perfect world, they should be unnecessary. This whole distorted system where you are calling down curses and calling down judgment on certain objects, you shouldn't have to resort to all of that in your life. There should be enough integrity in your speech and your character where your word alone is accepted. In fact, he goes on in verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no, because anything more than this comes from evil. Or you could translate it comes from the evil one, which is just another way of saying it just arises out of Satan, which is what Jesus says in another place whenever he says to the Pharisees, you are you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when you lie, you are speaking out of the character of Satan. He's the one who gave birth to lies. He, he told the very first lie in the Garden of Eden whenever he came on, on Eve and he told her that you, when you eat the forbidden, uh, from the forbidden tree, you surely will not die, he said. That's a lie. Uh, that, was, that was taking God's reality. God said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. That's taking his reality and saying, what God says is not true. God doesn't govern reality. Whatever he declares is not the way it's going to be. It's going to be different than the way God declares it. And that's essentially what a lie is. It is assaulting the sovereignty of God. It's wanting to place yourself on the throne that determines reality rather than him. And so you lie because you don't like the reality. You don't like what the world says about you. And so you exaggerate uh, your strengths. You don't like what your sin says about you. And so you fabricate things to cover it up. You tell lies so that you're not exposed in the dullness of your mind or in the, in the weaknesses of your flesh. You do all of those things because you do not want to accept the reality of what God says, that you're a sinner, that you're a liar, that you're a lustful and greedy person, that you are condemned in your sin, that you don't have all of the strengths that you wish that you had, that you don't control the world like you want to control it. You lie in all of these circumstances because at one level or another, you don't like those things. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you do that, 
You're just following the father of lies. He is a liar and speaks from his own nature, and he's the father of all lies. So anything beyond the simple realities of yes and no, they arise out of the evil one. They just come out of the evil one. Your responsibility then is simple. Just let your words line up with God's reality. That's it. That's all you need to do. If God says you're a sinner, you say, yes, I'm a sinner. If God says that you failed, you say, yeah, I failed. If God says that you're weak, you say, yes, I am weak. If God says that such and such is true, you say, yes, that is true. That's all your, that's your simple job. Is just to allow your speech and your words to align with his reality, whatever that might be. So your yes is yes and your no is no. Whenever God says yes, you say yes. Whenever God says no, you say no. That eliminates the need for all of these oaths, for all of these tricks, for all of this uh, these measures that people take to get around being looked at as dishonest whenever they are really dishonest. And it, by the way, just eliminates all of this worthless religion, which in so many cases is designed to project a reality that is different than what you really are. Because whether it's these oaths or any other sort of outward form of devotion, they're all geared in these systems of worthless religion. They're all geared to give the impression of something that you're not. You can have any form, any two-tiered form of devotion, devotions that are done simply to impress other people versus those acts of devotion that you think are done in sincerity to God. And Jesus is basically saying it's all before God. All of it is before him. Because he sits enthroned in his temple and he sits enthroned in heaven. And so all of it is before him. So your life should be marked by trust. By the testimony of truth. No more false excuses, no more made-up stories, no more exaggerated circumstances, no more half-truths or flippant flattery or irresponsible reports, just truth. And your religion and your devotion, no matter what it is, it ought to reflect that. And so your yes should be yes. Yes, I did that. Your no should be no, no. I didn't do that. And that's just the reality of who I am. I am unreliable. I am irresponsible. I am proud. I am angry. I am whatever it might be. And so that is who I am. Whatever your religious expression is, it must have an allowance for that, for the true reflection of who you are in its oaths, in its songs, in its praises, in its confessions. Well, Jesus gives a fourth warning of a kind of worthless religion, religion that clouds people's vision and, and gives them sort of misguided focus, and that's 
essentially what he warns about in verse 23, that this kind of worthless religion ignores important truths. Or in the words of Christ, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, he says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So so these guys, not only do they have this two-tiered system of oaths, but they also made a practice of magnifying the insignificant and minimizing the essential. This was in part because of their blindness. They didn't really understand what their true need was in their heart. They didn't understand what genuine spirituality was all about. And so they filled their lives with, with a focus on all of this peripheral stuff. But the fundamental issues that were necessary were, were unaddressed in their life. They were focused on these trivial matters, Constant distracting, constantly distracting them from the fundamental flaws and failures that should have been obvious to them, the deficiencies and distortions of their own heart. And Jesus puts the spotlight on perhaps what is the most extreme case, their misguided focus on tithing, this undue attention to tithing of the smallest of herbs. Now, tithing itself, of course, was a commandment in the, Old Te- in the Old Testament, in fact, there were three tithes that are commanded in the Old Testament, uh, all of them being expressed in some form by giving of animals and land and seed and fruits, basically the produce of your farm. The, the first one, known as the Levitical tithe in Numbers 18.21 or in Leviticus 27.30, this was given to the tribe of Levi as payment for their services of, of maintaining and carrying out all of the, the, the sacrifices in the temple. And also as a compensation, because when Israel first occupied the land of, or, or first uh, uh, went into the land of Canaan, when they first went in there, they themselves, uh, the, the Levites didn't receive an inheritance of land because their inheritance was this tithe. And so when you... When you had your produce on an annual basis, you were supposed to give a tenth of that to the Levites for their material support. And they, in turn, the Levites, in turn, would give a tenth of of what they received to the priesthood. In Deuteronomy 14.22, there's a second tithe known as the festival tithe. And this is different than the one in Numbers 18 because this is not given to the Levites This is actually something that you were to bring to Jerusalem whenever you went up for the festival and you were to consume it yourself. It is a feast or a festival tithe. You were to use it as a part of the celebration of these feasts. These two tithes, the festival tithe and the Levitical tithe, were were annual or we might even say occasional tithes in the case of of the festival tithe that was each festival uh, you were supposed to take uh, the portion of your of your proceeds since the last festival you're supposed to take a tenth of that portion and take it to the next festival and consume it but there was a third tithe known as the welfare tithe it was only offered every third year and it was intended for the foreigner 
for the orphan, for the widow, and sometimes even for the Levite when they themselves were still lacking in everything that they need. And it's described in Deuteronomy 14, 28. And it was, as I said, only every third year that you were to bring that. So all in all, there were these three tithes that that constituted roughly about 23 and a third percent of all that would come in for every Jew. And as I said, these were primarily taken from the grains and the oils and the the wine and the fruits and the vegetables that would come off of your land. This, of course, set up a framework for discussions about how extensive your calculations should be when it comes to these tithes, particularly when, it brought, uh, when you brought the Levitical tithe. Religious leaders would squabble and debate about how these tithes needed to be calculated down to the smallest, the most the most minute of all that you own, including even these potted plants, these herbs. And the scribes and Pharisees then picked leaves from mint or cumin or dill. They would count out each of those leaves, each little speck, separating one out of every ten and setting it aside, no doubt probably figuring out a way to do this in the most visible venue so that people could see how meticulous they are in the giving of every tiny leaf because they gloried not so much in the intent but in the minutiae. But in all of this attention to these issues, Jesus says, they gave no focus to what were weightier matters. Weightier matters in the law. People say, well, wait a second. Are you saying that there are some laws that are weightier than other laws? Well, apparently so, according to Jesus. There are some laws that were more important and some that were less. Some that carried more weight and some that didn't. Those elements that, according to Christ here, that carried more weight were those that were related to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Much like uh, the law of love that Paul celebrates in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, now abide these faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. There is uh, sort of a, a sliding scale, if you will, of importance with certain features of of God's uh, call to spirituality. And among these were justice and mercy, or we might say justice and love and faithfulness. Now, this was discernible, of course, in the Old Testament. If you just read it, Micah 6, for example, says, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before him? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, God's way more concerned with those things than he is with a thousand rams that you may offer, thousands of dollars, hours of service, 
all kinds of acts of devotion. Those things, they are nothing compared to what God's really concerned about, which is your love for mercy, your love for faithfulness, or we might say truthfulness, and your love for justice. Those are the weighty matters that Jesus says they were neglecting. You know, this is exactly what Jesus meant back in chapter 22 when somebody asked him about the greatest commandment. And he said, the greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And there's a second commandment like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these depend the whole law and the whole prophets. In other words, if you get your focus on those things, then all the other laws will fall into place. The tithing, those things will take care of themselves. Why? Because you're concerned about the Levites. Because you don't want them to be left behind. It's not so much a matter of whether or not you have precisely calculated a tenth of what you have. It now becomes a matter of do they have what they need? And how can I help them get to that point? And no longer is it, have I, have I accounted for a, a, a tenth of my crops every third year? No longer is it that. Now it's concern for the poor and the widow and the needy. Now it's asking yourself constantly, what more can I do as an act of mercy and as an act of, of faithfulness and an act of justice for those who are alongside of me? Pharisees and scribes, they... They, for whatever reason, completely ignored those things. They, they, they could talk all day long about how many tiny leaves you pull off your plant, but they had no, no concern for the weightier matters that were lacking in their heart, the lack of love, the lack of truthfulness, the lack of mercy. That was not their focus at all. Just the calculations Did I check the box? Did I give more than everybody else? Jesus says, look, these things you should have done. It's right and it's it's good for you to tithe. You certainly should be thinking about how all the ways the Lord has blessed you down to your potted plants. You ought to be thinking about all the ways that God has filled your life with so many good things and taking account of all of those good things, you ought to be giving back to the Lord. You should have been doing that. But not to the neglect of the weightier matters. Because those things without these weightier matters are useless. They're useless. In other words, Jesus is not opposed to sort of strict attention to religious duties that govern the most minor details of your life. That's not what Jesus is concerned about. He he understood the, the deceptive nature of sin. He understood how our own hearts so many times can open up avenues in the smallest of ways to allow the enemy to take to make inroads into our heart. He understood the need to guard yourself in all matters of life. That's not what concerns him. What concerns him is to congratulate yourself when you've done that, when in fact the weightier matters of God's law are not being addressed. God calls us to high standards. Paul tells us in Thessalonians, examine everything carefully. 
Hold fast to what is true and abstain from every form of evil. There's no, there's no commendation for being doctrinally or ethically lax in any category of your life. You ought to be thinking about what pleases God in the most minute way, whether it's your entertainment, whether it is your friendships, whether it is how you seek satisfaction, leisure, rest, whatever it might be. Those ought to be things that you're wanting to see sanctified by the Lord. But what you shouldn't be doing is thinking that if you have focused on all of that minutia, that that is everything that God desires. No, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Or as Peter says in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, whenever he's talking about the Christian life, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. So he's got all of those, all of those uh, categories of, of excellence and high moral standards, knowledge and self-control. All of those things which are talking about well thought out, high standards of life, difficult standards to maintain. But then when you have all of those things, he adds in the final ingredient in verse 7, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Why? Because that's the pinnacle. That's the chief virtue. That's the supreme goal of all these things is that all of your godliness and self-control and all of those things would open up avenues of love, would solidify your commitment to mercy, would give you all the latitude to express kindness to everyone around you. This kind of worthless religion to these guys, it just focused all the attention on the fastidious accomplishments, not the needs of others. But that's where genuine godliness aims. That's what it aims at. It looks to love, it looks to kindness, it looks to justice. And it understands that whatever kind of self-discipline you might be employing, whatever kind of detail that you're focused on, you're focused on for that purpose of magnifying God through the kindness and love that pours out of your life. This is how you discern worthless religion versus the true thing. And Jesus wants you to understand that. He doesn't want you to be caught up in any kind of worthless pursuit. Well, he's got more here, more warnings for us so that we could avoid these dangers as we will move on into in a couple of weeks here in Matthew chapter 23. Father, thank you for this. Uh, we unfortunately have seen these kinds of things in our lives, the calculations that we make about whether or not we can impress others when in fact we have no commitments in our heart to truthfulness, faithfulness, love, and mercy. We are unfortunately selfish and prideful 
and corrupt and dishonest from birth. But how grateful we are that you have led us to the truth. And it's a truth that transforms us from the inside out. It makes our hearts new and gives us a yearning for genuine spirituality, for truthfulness in our inmost being. We pray that you would help us in that then. Help us that these things which are weighty, these things which are essential, that they would be essential in our perspective. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.